Thanks, Paul. Thank you to the band and Paul for leading us and to helping us this morning as we remember the Lord Jesus together as well. It's great, isn't it, when churches grow because people are trusting in Jesus and are giving their lives to him. It's, it's wonderful to hear of churches where that's happening and it's so encouraging. Sometimes we think it only happens in other countries or in other churches, although it doesn't happen anymore. It used to happen, but only in the good old days. And we remember perhaps when we saw people saved and our church is growing, but it doesn't happen anymore. As I was preparing for today, I looked back over the last few years here at Regent and I wrote down how many people had expressed that they'd given their lives to Jesus and had begun to follow him and how many people had also been baptised. And I was just blown off my feet. I was so excited when I actually worked out how many people had done that. And I emailed Paul and Keith and just really encouraged, really exciting. Since 2008, over 20 people have publicly stated in this church that they've trusted in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's fantastic. Absolutely. Thanks for you, Fiona. If that's someone's excited, over 20 people have publicly expressed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Saviour. That means that more than 20 people have turned away from their sins, have had their sins forgiven, have entered into a relationship with God through Jesus and have eternal life. That is fantastic. That is amazing. That should excite us. It doesn't just happen in the old days. It doesn't just happen in other churches. It's happening amongst us. It's happened amongst us. It's happening amongst us. It's fantastic. People who were heading for a lost eternity and have instead received eternal life. Two of them, just two weeks ago, Claire and I had the pleasure of leading um, Emma and Stephen's parents to the Lord. Fantastic, wonderfully humbling experience just to see two people give their lives to Jesus. I also looked at the number of people who've been baptised during that period as well. And I discovered that 18 people have been baptised. Isn't that fantastic? I think another round of applause. We need that. 18 people have been baptised. Absolutely fantastic. And even just this last week or so, four other people have asked to be baptised in this church. Four, four more people have asked to be baptised. That is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, amazing. Thank God, it's great, it's fantastic. Four people who have recently trusted in Jesus and want to be baptised. It's so exciting. It is so encouraging. And that is what it's all about, isn't it? That ultimately is what it's all about. Lost people trusting in Jesus pledging to follow him, receiving eternal life, and publicly becoming followers of Jesus. However, when a church grows, whether it's this one or any church, through people trusting in Jesus, and sometimes through other Christians moving to the church and so on, it's fantastic, it's, it's amazing, but it does bring some challenges and some potential problems. Because as the church grows, it needs to change how it does things, because it what works for perhaps 20 people won't work for 120, and what works for 120 doesn't work for 1,000 people, and so on. And that's exactly what happened to the church back there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. They grew from just over 100 people as the church began, people who were followers of Jesus, just over 100 of them, when Jesus ascended back to heaven after having risen from the dead, and in a very, very short space of time, the church had grown to between six and 7,000 people. Now, 20 people is fantastic, Six or 7,000, that's fantastic, phenomenal growth. And of course, we'd love to see that, wouldn't we? And so we keep praying that more people will trust in Jesus through us here. But the church had gone from about 100 people to between six and 7,000 people in a really very short space of time. At the end of Acts 5, which is what we were studying last week, we read these words. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The apostles... The 12 leaders of that first church 
Plus the church members themselves were busy, they were engaged in telling people and they were focused on telling lost people about Jesus, even at great risk to their own lives. And as we looked at last week, they were forbidden from doing this, they were banned, but they said, no, we're going to do this anyway because it's more important that we obey God than we obey men and the authorities. And so they set out and they preached the good news and eventually, of course, all of them lost their lives apart from John and many other Christians would be martyred as a result of this determination to spread the gospel. But as a result, the church just kept on growing and growing and growing as people heard the good news about Jesus and they put their faith and trust in him and trusted in him as their Lord and Saviour. But this caused some unforeseen problems and challenges for the church and their leaders. So we're going to see today how they tackled these problems as they grew from being a church of 100, which to us is probably today in the UK a big church. They started with 100, 120 folks, but they went all the way up to what we would think of as a mega church, six, 7,000 people. How do they adjust to that and how do they keep their, 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 um, their priorities? How do they balance their priorities as a church? So let's read from Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 7. So remember the context here is that they're, they're, they're facing persecution, but nevertheless they're going out. Day after day they're preaching and teaching from house to house and, and right at the centre of Jerusalem in the temple as well. And people are being, uh, becoming Christians every day. More and more people are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 6 verse 1 says this, In those days when the number of disciples, that's people who've trusted in Jesus, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews amongst them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The church and its leaders there in Jerusalem, despite facing real opposition and the fate or, or the threat of death itself, and despite from having been banned from preaching about Jesus, they were so active, they were so determined, they were so focused on spreading the good news, they had met Jesus themselves, many of them, and they'd had their lives transformed as they had encountered Jesus through the gospel, through the good news, and they just wanted to tell other people. And so the church just kept on growing and growing, and daily new Christians were being joined and being added to the church. But there was a problem, a, a problem that they hadn't foreseen. Look at verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, Grecian Jews aren't people who are wearing Grecian 2000. It's not a hair product or anything like that. Okay, we're talking about people, Jews who spoke Greek and Jews who spoke Hebrew. All Jews, but some spoke Greek and some spoke Hebrew. And we'll come back to that. So Luke begins this verse by saying that in those days, at that time, the number of disciples was increasing. And a disciple is just somebody who follows Jesus. It's, it's how the Bible describes people who've repented, turned away from their sins, and have given their lives to Jesus and have made him the Lord of their lives. 
and then they spend the rest of their lives seeking to follow Jesus. So if you've trusted in Jesus, then you're a disciple. We are always disciples for all of our lives. Disciples aren't just people who become Christians and do a discipleship course for a few weeks. We are all disciples. We're all followers of Jesus. We're listening to what Jesus says. We're seeking to follow where he leads and we're seeking to obey him. And that's what a disciple does. And by this stage, there were around six to 7,000 possibly more disciples, people who were following Jesus as their saviour and as their Lord. And at this stage, all these Christians were ethnically Jews. That's what they were. They were Jewish people. There were no Gentiles yet, no non-Jewish people who trusted in Jesus. We'll find out how that happens in the weeks ahead as we work through Acts. But at this stage, every single Christian was a Jew. They were ethnically, racially, they were Jewish. And because they'd accepted Jesus as the Messiah, this was really politically difficult for them. And it meant that they were cut off, but many of them, from their Uh, Jewish family and friends who rejected Jesus as the Messiah and they found themselves as happens in many countries today when people trust in Jesus their family shun them and so many of them had nothing left they had no money particularly the widows who had nobody to provide for them and they were going without they had no money they had no food and so the church rallied together and said you're now part of our family let's do what we can to provide for you back in Acts 2 we read how the Christians sold their possessions They sold whatever they had to make sure there was a a pot of money to be able to help those that had nothing. Those who had no food, who had no one to provide for them. Those who did have plenty sold what they had to make sure that everybody had what they they needed. But now as the church grew, you know, that was was okay at 120 or as the the first church, uh, or after the first sermon there was 3,000. Now we're up to six to seven, maybe 8,000 people And this was becoming a lot more complex, a lot more difficult to manage and to handle. These Christians were all still ethnically Jewish, but some of them spoke Greek and some of them spoke Hebrew. And that's because the Greek Empire, under Alexander the Great, and then after he died it split into four, and four different rulers ruled different parts of the Greek Empire. The the Jews were ruled by the Greeks, and many of them adopted Greek uh, language and culture and lifestyle. They were called Hellenistic Jews. Some still kind of held on to their Hebrew heritage and still spoke Hebrew, but most, or or certainly many of them, adopted the Greek language and lifestyle. So here we've got some, we've got all these Jews who've been saved. Some of them still spoke Hebrew, some of them still spoke Greek. And these two groups began to, there begins to be a bit of tension between these two groups. They're all Christians, they're all Jewish, but some speak a different language to the other. And as the church tried to provide for the Christians who had no money, specifically the widows, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were being discriminated against in favour of the Jews who spoke Hebrew. And this created friction, it created tension and division amongst the early Christians. And it's understandable, isn't it? If you were a Greek-speaking Christian and you had real needs and you saw a Hebrew-speaking Christian next to you in church getting money and you weren't, you would be a little bit annoyed by that. You would be a little bit upset by that. That wouldn't seem right, would it? And I think that's exactly what was happening in this early church. And we see here that despite being followers of Jesus, some of these early Christians were still following the ways and behaviour of the world around them. They were allowing the standards, the way that the world behaved, to influence how they acted as Christians. And we can all find ourselves so easily doing that, can't we? We're influenced by the world and its standards, and we have to constantly renew our minds as we read Scripture and make sure that we are coming back in line with how God wants us to live. And these Hebrew-speaking Jews were basically prejudiced against the Greek-speaking Jews. 
if you were to boil it down to something similar today, you know, it would be like uh, perhaps somebody from one part of the UK being prejudiced against someone from another part of the UK simply because of the accent they have or, or the language they speak or whatever. And it was a simple case of treating people differently simply because of the language they had or the accent they had. Now that seems bizarre to us, doesn't it? But it happens, doesn't it? This was and is totally wrong. They should have been treating everybody equally, but they were allowing worldly and sinful prejudices to influence their behaviour. It was just simple prejudice, simple racism. It wasn't so much racism because they were all the same race, but a simple prejudice coming up over someone who spoke differently or sounded different to them. And they were allowing these kind of worldly, sinful ways of behaving to influence how they were acting as a church. And so one part of the church were getting stuff and the other part of the church weren't, purely because of the language they spoke and the accent they had. Galatians 3:28 says this about the church, God's family. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In other words, ethnicity or race is irrelevant. Our social standing or our wealth, in this case, whether we're slaves or free, we don't have slavery in our country, but back then this was prominent. Paul said it doesn't matter if you're a slave or a free person, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, you are all one in Christ. There's no division. We don't treat people differently because of their social standing or their education or their accent or the way they look. That has got nothing, has no place in the church. Our ethnicity, our race is irrelevant. Our social standing or wealth is irrelevant. How big our house is or how small it is, what car we drive, whether we're male or female, it's irrelevant. If we've trusted in Jesus, then we are one. We are one family, irrespective of what we look like, what we sound like, where we went to school or whatever else. There shouldn't be any division in God's people. And nobody should be treated differently because of their race or their accent or their language or their education, their social standing or anything else that we can think of. So write that on your outline. There's an outline on your chair. If you want to pick those up, if you want to use those this morning, you can. Write this down. We need to view and treat all Christians as equal. We need to view and treat all Christians as equal, regardless of race or nationality or education or social standing. We leave all that behind when we come into God's family. We might have once thought that way. We might have once been prejudiced against one group or another. But that, that goes. That We leave that behind. Because we're no longer part of this world's structures, we're part of God's family. And in God's family, we're all rock. we are all one. And so the apostles had to, had to step in and they had to stamp out any sense of prejudice or inequality and to make sure that the values of God's kingdom were the ones that were lived by in his community of his people. But they didn't just need to address the prejudices and the inequalities that were arising. They also needed to make sure that the practical needs of the church were met. Because there was a real problem here with some people were going without. There was a practical problem. It was vital that all the practical needs of those who were needy and vulnerable were met. They had a group of widows that had nobody to provide for them. And it was essential that the rest of the church made sure that they were provided for. And write this down, we need to provide for the practical needs of those in our church family. We need to provide for the practical needs of those in our church family. Within a local church, there shouldn't be anyone who has to go without financially. It doesn't mean we have everything we want. Our wants and needs are two different things. But if we have a, a real need, whether it's food or clothing or heating and, and these kind of things, it shouldn't happen that within a church family there is one person who is going without while others have plenty. If a person has a need, then we've got to do all we can to get together and meet that need. But it might not just be financial needs. The, the, the issue here particularly was financial needs. It was widows who had nobody to provide for them. 
but it might be bigger than that. And as we step outside of that cultural situation into our own, we can spread it out further, can't we? It might be someone who's too frail or elderly to cut their grass. I can't cut my grass, so anybody who would like to cut mine any time, you're, you're very welcome. Actually, it's mostly moss, so it wouldn't take you very long. But it might be someone who's too frail or elderly to cut their grass or to do some housework. It might be someone who's in hospital and needs visiting. It might be somebody who needs help with their shopping. It might be a single parent who needs help with their kids. It's not just elderly people. We can have young people too, perhaps single parents, who have real financial problems and difficulties and are stuck in the house and so on. It could be all sorts of practical needs. And as a church, we need to do all we can to make sure that we provide for those practical needs. Sometimes we'll miss things, but we've got to try and do all we can to make sure that nobody has real needs. Wants are different, but when we have real practical needs, that we get together and do all we can to help provide for those needs. As churches grow, this church in Acts has grown exponentially. Let's pray that we grow exponentially, but even in the growth that we've seen in this church, it's possible for people to fall through the cracks, for people who have needs to be missed, and they still have those needs. And so we need to do what we can to address that, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So the 12 apostles, who were the leaders of that first church, they were effectively the elders of the church there in Jerusalem at this stage, they got together and they reviewed the situation. There were 12 of them, and there was between six, seven, maybe 8,000 Christians in the church. So there was no way that these 12 men, even though they might have been Superman, there's no way these 12 could meet all of the needs of six to 7,000 people. That was just impossible. They couldn't lead and preach and teach and help people become disciples of Jesus as well as ensuring that those in need got their daily distribution of food. The two things, they just couldn't do all of those things with the 12 of them. So verse 2, look at what it says. The 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. If the church was going to grow, then they had to establish some systems and structures to make sure that the church could look after both the practical needs of the, of the existing members and any new members that would come to faith, whilst at the same time they could make sure that they kept on reaching out to lost people and kept on preaching. And then when those lost people turned to, faith, turned to Christ in faith and became Christians and became disciples, they then needed to make sure those lost people were taught and discipled and that loads of prayer was taking place to make sure all this happened. The practical needs of the church members were hugely important but they couldn't be allowed to prevent the church and the 12 apostles from, from keep on focusing, spreading and going out and spreading the good news about Jesus and then teaching people how to follow him. There was a tension. The apostles who at this stage were the elders of the church, they were clear that their role was to focus on teaching and preaching and praying. That was the, the, their focus that they had to focus on, the thing that they had to focus on. And it was vital that as the spiritual leaders of the church... They had to focus on preaching and teaching from the Word of God, the Bible, and on praying for the church and praying and doing all that they could to ensure that the church reached out and that lost people, people who didn't know Jesus, would come into contact with the gospel and come to faith. So they needed another group of people who could focus on ensuring that the practical needs of the church were met. So they got the, the church together, probably not the whole church, probably a selection of key people. And in verse 3 we read these words, Brothers, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. In other words, Bible teaching. So the church was to choose seven men who were godly men, full of the Holy Spirit, men who were living 
their lives are surrendered to God, men who have great wisdom and they'd need loads of wisdom if they were going to be handling money and deciding, did this person need help or did this person need help? And then as the elders of the church, the 12 apostles would hand over the responsibility of ensuring that the needs of the church were met, the practical needs of the church were met by this group of seven men. And this would mean then that as the elders of the church, they could, they could focus on teaching and on preaching the word of God and on prayer and making sure the church stayed focused on mission and reaching lost people. And so the group of people that the 12 apostles had consulted were pleased with the idea and verse 5 says this, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. They found seven godly wise men and they publicly recognized them in this special role by laying their hands on them and praying for them. It was a kind of public ceremony to recognize them in this new role. And these men's task, these seven men's task, was to ensure that those who had practical needs in the church in Jerusalem were looked after. In their specific case, at that time, it was distribution of food to widows. They weren't meant to do it all themselves. There's no way that these seven could, could meet all the needs of six to 7,000 people. Their role was to ensure that it happened and that it happened fairly, because it was already happening. The problem was there was discrimination going on. So the church was already doing this. It needed a group of people to make sure it happened properly, and that there was no discrimination. And this pattern of church structure became the norm as the church expanded, and over the next few years, at this stage we've only got one church in Jerusalem, but very quickly the church would be uh, persecuted and, and spread out across Europe, and there was churches planted all over Europe, and we're going to follow that through as we go through Acts in the next few months. And as these churches were established, this is the structure that we see established and we see taught on in the epistles, the letters that the apostles would write. So we have a structure where the elders would lead and direct the spiritual affairs of the church as well as teach and preach and pray for the church and provide shepherd-like care. And then we, there'd be a group of what became known as deacons, and the word deacon literally simply means servant. And it's someone who serves the church by making sure that wherever possible, those who have practical needs have them met by the church. So we have this two kind of structure going on. So the elders provide shepherd-like care, Bible teaching. Can we have that slide up, please, Aaron? The elders provide shepherd-like care, Bible teaching, prayer, spiritual protection, authority and direction for the church. And there are other parts of the New Testament which teach us other things that the elders do, which I've listed there. And then we have the deacons whose role it is to coordinate the practical care and welfare uh, for the, of those in our church and those in contact with our church who were in need. So you've got these two groups in the church, the elders providing one role and deacons doing something else. That's the model that we find there in the New Testament. It begins in Acts 6 and we, found it, we find it expanded on uh, in other parts of the New Testament. And it's the model that we followed or tried to follow here at Regent. I said earlier, it, it, it's great that so many people have publicly professed their faith in the Lord Jesus here at Regent. But as our church grows and God willing will continue to grow and as we continue to reach out to spread the good news, we also need to, to, to teach and disciple those new Christians, but we also have to make sure that the, the practical needs of those in the church already and those who will join the church are met. So we have to balance our priorities as a church. And this is the system that God created here in the New Testament of elders focusing on one thing and deacons focusing particularly on the practical needs. So the role of deacons is partly to ensure the practical needs of the people in the church are met. But it's also and this is important, to make sure the elders are freed up to focus on what they're called to do and what the biblical 
outline of what elders is. So a challenge to think through this morning is this. What can I do to support the elders and ensure that they can stay focused on their task? The elders have a specific task and you can trace that through the New Testament principally of uh, shepherd-like care, of teaching, of prayer, uh, of discipleship, of authority, of leadership in the church, of direction for the church. What can we do to ensure that the elders of this church are freed up to be able to stay focused on that and not dragged off in different directions, important those, diff- those different things might be, but to stay focused on making sure this church keeps on reaching out, keeps on teaching people, keeps on building people up in the faith? How can I help the elders of the church do their job? What can I do to help and support them? Not necessarily to do what the elders are doing, but to ensure that they can stay focused and aren't doing other things. What can I do to make sure they're not being distracted by things, good things they might be, that will pull them away from ensuring the church is well-led and governed? Well, what can I do to free them up so that they ensure the good news about Jesus is being spread and that people are being taught well from the Bible and are being helped to become real disciples of the Lord Jesus? You know, as well as the deacons being appointed to help the elders of the church stay focused on this all-important task of doing what God's called them to do, deacons are also appointed to ensure that the practical needs of the church are met, that those who are in need in the church have their needs met and provided for. You know, just as in Jerusalem, it's not practical or realistic for one group of people to provide all the practical needs in a local church. The deacons in Acts 6 were chiefly appointed to lead and direct the practical care of the church in Jerusalem. There's no way these, six, these seven people could, could meet all the practical needs of six or 7,000 people. They were there to oversee it, to make sure it worked properly, and to make sure there wasn't particularly, in this case, any prejudice taking place, that it happened fairly. But they couldn't do it all on their own. And the same is true here in this church. We, we don't have six or 7,000 people. The deacons are probably really glad about that, uh, because that would be a, a logistical nightmare. It'd be a fantastic one to have. We don't have that many people, but even so, it's not realistic for the four deacons that we have to meet all the practical needs of the people in our church, and especially, God willing, as the church grows. So their, their role, our deacons' role, is very much one of leading and organizing the practical care. They still need lots of other people to help them carry it out. So another challenge to think through this morning is this. What can I do to help the deacons provide for the practical needs of those in our church? What can I do to help the deacons provide for the practical needs of those in our church? They can't do it all on their own. They have jobs, they have families, they have other roles already in the church, as well as being deacons. So how can we all help them ensure that those who have practical needs in our church are served and helped? Maybe you could help with lifts to hospital. Maybe you could help someone by doing the shopping for them. Maybe you could help by cutting the grass for somebody. Maybe you could help by visiting somebody who is housebound or take them out for a coffee to the shops. Maybe you could help visit someone who's in hospital. Maybe you could provide a meal for someone who's just come out of hospital or for the family, particularly perhaps those who just had babies. All sorts of different things like this. Practical needs that people have at different times in their lives. It won't always be financial. It can be other aspects of life. But different needs that people will have at times in their lives that we can and should seek to meet if at all possible. So if there's anything you can do in a practical way, particularly to help the deacons do this, or maybe you're just willing to be asked as and when, you say, well, just just ask me. I, I don't know what I can do, but if there's a need, come and see me and I'll do what I can. 
then can I encourage you to go and see one of the deacons today and make known your willingness to help. Our deacons are, are, are John and, and Rachel and Peter and Heidi. And if you can help them help the church and make sure that people who have practical needs have those needs met, then, then please go and speak to them because I know they'd be delighted to uh, involve you in that practical care. And it might just be every now and again uh, to, be, to, be, to be phoned up and said somebody needs visiting or someone needs a lift or someone needs some shopping doing. It might be all sorts of different things, things that you can help with and you can really uh, help with and provide for those practical needs. I know that John particularly is fantastic at building decks. He helped me build a deck. That's not on offer. I just hasten to add the deacons won't do decks for people in their back gardens, but they will try and help you with practical things like shopping or with hospital visits or with financial needs. We need everybody to help together to make sure that the person sitting next to us doesn't have needs. Wants are a different matter. We might all want a deck in our back garden. That's not on offer. But when we do have real practical needs, then the deacons are there to try and help with that. But they need all of us to come together to make that happen. Now the focus of this passage is specifically the establishing of the role of deacons in the local church. And in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, we get a fuller, more developed list of qualifications for those who are deacons. In, in, in Acts 6, the apostles say it has to be men who are full of the Holy Spirit and, and, and are wise. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul elaborates on this to a much greater extent. He says this, Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now we haven't got time to go into this list of qualifications in detail. Perhaps when we go through 1 Timothy, in, in perhaps in, in future years we can do that. But a few principles we can briefly mention. Firstly, deacons need to be those who are respected by the rest of the church. They need to be able to control themselves uh, around alcohol and other things and, and, and be free from any accusations of lacking in self-control. They need to be trustworthy. They're going to be handling church money potentially, so it's important that they can be trusted and there's no accusation of being in it for themselves or anything like that. They need to be people who are deeply committed to Scripture and to living by it. Must be people who will maintain confidentiality. And male deacons, Paul says, have to be exemplary in their married life and in the way they bring up their children and manage their families. The role of deacons is a hugely important one and it's one that requires the those who take that role on to be godly and full of the Holy Spirit. But just as with church elders, who have a different role, they need the rest of the church to pray for them and to support them and get behind them. One of the reasons, as we've already seen, for having deacons in a church is so that the elders can be freed up to focus on their role, which is different. And part of their role is to keep the whole church focused on the all-important task of reaching out to lost people with the good news about Jesus and to teaching them and helping them become disciples. And that's one of the elders' role, is to make sure, as Paul says to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 5, that the elders who direct the affairs of the church well, the elders are there to direct the affairs of the church and to do it well, and to make sure the whole church stays focused on the great commission of reaching out to lost people. And we see that for the church in Jerusalem, this worked. As the apostles, who were the, the early elders, as they did this, as they restructured the church and brought these deacons in, it worked. As they had grown 
They needed some structures to put in place to help them function better and more smoothly. And so as they appointed these seven servants or deacons, it enabled the twelve apostles, who were the elders of that church, to carry out their role, to focus on what they were doing, and to lead the church well so that more people could come to faith in Jesus as Saviour. And we see the outcome of this in verse 7. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It was because they did this that the word of God continued spreading. It was because they restructured their church to make sure they were able to, the apostles were freed up to preach and teach and to pray, and so the word of God spread. And if they hadn't done that, the apostles would have been distracted with providing practical welfare. And hugely important though that is, don't get me wrong, it couldn't and it mustn't be allowed to prevent the word of God spreading and the good news about Jesus being preached. Because the apostles were able to preach and teach about Jesus, the number of disciples in Jerusalem grew rapidly. Many more people trusted in Jesus and gave their lives to him as a result and began to follow him. And even a large number of priests, those that were part of the Jewish religious establishment that had opposed Jesus and the early church, even many of them trusted in Jesus and became obedient to him. So write this down. Our primary focus as a church must always be on spreading the good news and making disciples. There are loads of other competing priorities, loads of good things, and practical care and welfare for those in need is hugely important, don't get me wrong. But we mustn't allow anything to pull us away or distract us, however well-meaning we might be, from staying focused on that primary commission, that great commission to go into the world, all the world, and make disciples, to preach repentance and forgiveness as Jesus commands. We mustn't allow those in need in our church to be ignored, or to be missed, it would be terrible. It would be, it would be shameful if people had practical needs and we weren't meeting those practical needs. And so we've got to do all we can to get together to see how can we help those in practical need. But we also need to make sure that we stay focused on this all-important task of spreading the good news and of making disciples. And that's why we have deacons, to make sure that those in need are helped whilst the spreading of the gospel and making disciples goes on unhindered. So what can you do to help in all this? What can you do to help the elders of the church? What can you do to help the deacons? What can you personally do to spread the good news about Jesus? Who are you discipling? We're all meant to be making disciples. What practical help can you offer to those in need through our deacons? As we draw to a close this morning, I'm going to ask Rachel just to come up. And Rachel, on the back of what we said this morning, is just going to share a little bit about some of the needs that we do have that you could get involved with. On your chairs, there's a, there's a scattering of leaflets, which is about the deacons, uh, the little sort of uh, folder, A5 folder. Uh, grab one of those and uh, look at those. It's got blue. It's got blue on the front. It talks about being um, uh, passionate about God, passionate about serving. I think we're passionate about people, passionate about serving. So grab one of those. But Rachel's just going to talk to us for a few minutes and then I'm going to come back up and wrap up. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Um, sorry if I repeat a bit of the sermon, but um, hopefully I can be a bit more specific in what we're doing here and um, some of the needs we have. Um, firstly, can I say that Regent has always been a very caring church in which people have practically helped each other, and this is still the case. Um, through home groups and friendships, um, a great deal of practical care happens, and um, please continue with that. Um, but as Andy says, as the church gets bigger, the danger is that people will um, slip through the gaps. And our aim is to ensure that that doesn't happen. Um, also, there are times when some people need longer term and frequent help, and then we need people from the whole church to get together to help that. Um, so in the last year, we have um, organised 
quite a large number of meal rotors. Um, we've done DIY tasks. There's been hospital visiting, home visiting, lifts, and shopping trips. Um, two current special needs that we have, if you can help, um, please let me know, um, is trying to get a rotor together to tell, help Eileen with her shopping. Um, she's not here today, so I can mention her name. Which just involves going with her um, or meeting her actually at a shop. It's not a massive thing, and taking her shopping, and she massively appreciates it. Um, and also visiting someone at home um, who is fairly isolated and would um, yeah, appreciate home visits. Um, so, yeah, the leaflets are around. If you haven't already had one, please take one. Um, you can fill in the response form, or you can chat to me or John or Peter and Heidi, or phone us or email us. Um, Tell us if you can help in any way. The other thing is, we need to know if you need help. Um, so if you need help or you know of someone who needs help, let us know. We'll be as confidential as we can. Um, and then we can, we can try and organise the church to work as it should to help you. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you to the deacons for all that they do. And just to say that there's loads of other folks who are behind the scenes sacrificially serve in different ways with meals, with shopping, with lifts, with loads of visitation and uh, those people know who they are and as Hebrews 6 verse 10 says, God is not unjust, he will not forget the love you have shown for his people as you have helped them and so we should cling on to that, that God sees and records that and knows that. But if you can help, if there are different ways you can help as a church, then please do see the deacons and they would be delighted I'm sure to pull that in, uh, that help and that offers of help to be able to serve one another. We never know when we are the ones who need help. Certainly Claire and I appreciated the practical help of lifts for Claire to the hospital when I was in hospital just before the autumn and some fantastic meals as well. Uh, it was fantastic. We dined out for, for a few weeks on, on lasagna and, and pasta and all sorts of gifts from people in the church which made a real difference for us and I know that others have experienced that too. So if you can help in practical ways, do see them. I'm going to pray now and then our service will be over. If you want to come and chat with me about anything I've said this morning, I'd be delighted to talk to you. Um, just to say there isn't an evening service this evening, but space is on as normal at 6.15 and do see Ryan if you want to know more about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture in Jerusalem of this church that grew exponentially. We thank you that we can celebrate here whilst not growing in uh, such dramatic ways. We thank you nevertheless for new people coming to faith in you and our church growing as lost people have turned to you and been saved. Father, we pray that we would be a church that not only reaches out to lost people but also cares and helps for those who have practical needs and spiritual needs in our own church. That Lord, we would be a church that's known as a church that loves one another. That we would be known as a church who loves everybody regardless of how we look or our education or our wealth or our social standing or our language or accents, that we would be a church that treats everybody equally and loves everybody, and that we would provide for one another and care for one another. But we also pray, Lord, that you'd help us to stay focused and to manage and balance these priorities, to keep reaching out to people who don't, don't yet know you, that, Lord, we might see the gospel spread in this area, in Gosforth, in North Newcastle, right around Tyneside and right across this country that many will come to faith in you and that we will have the pleasure of seeing this church growing and growing and new churches being planted and we pray not just for our own church but all the churches across Tyneside as they preach the good news that many would come to faith in you and, ch and our churches would grow. Father, we pray for our nation this week. 
that your spirit would be at work in this land and we pray for those in authority. We pray that you would uh, speak into their hearts and lives. May they govern in a godly way. May they govern according to your principles. And whoever is elected on Thursday, we pray that godly government would be brought into being and that as you say in your word that, the, that we would be able to leave uh, peaceful lives and that the gospel can still go forwards in this nation uh, with, the, with, with the government that are appointed. So bless our nation, we pray. Bless us, we pray. Go with us this week now as we seek to live for you and as we seek to serve you and to serve one another. May we truly be a church that's passionate about God and passionate about people, both those within and without our church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.